Hey there, friends. You know, on the show, I've made some negative comments about some strands of classical Christian education. And yet, I'm not sure I have fully let you in on the fact that I do care about the classical tradition, the Western tradition, the liberal arts. Uh, I'm aware of the ways in which they can go wrong. But I'm also aware of the ways in which some progressive, modern, anarchist forms of education uh, could be good and bad in my own life uh, growing up. And so today, I'm going to offer you a bonus episode. It's just with me, but as you'll see towards the end, a lot of the a lot of the content actually comes from stuff that Stacy has brought to my attention. But today, I'm going to talk about the the real powerful things that the liberal arts can provide along with a, a, a frank recognition of the things that it has done or or the ways in which it can have some uh, uh, consolidating effect on power, which means that the liberal arts can also be seen in history to have been elitist, right? So can it be liberating? Yes. Can it be elitist? Yes. Can, be a, uh, can it be a waste of money? Yes. Can it be the best thing you'd ever spend your money on? Indeed it can. At the end of the show, you're going to hear a, uh, an address from me at Concordia University, Irvine. And I found myself actually, you know, spending, spending that time with the students defending the importance of this kind of education and specifically why there might be a way in which a Christian liberal arts education could be really good for your health, even though when it goes wrong, it can be real dangerous. So keep your, uh, keep your hats on there. Keep your little uh, noggins protected by your orange helmet, metaphorically or really, depending on what you're doing for a living and where you are these days. So glad you're along for the ride. Here we go. All ahead, one-third. All ahead, one-third. Aye, aye. Time by to dive. Diving stations. Dive. Dive. Welcome, friends, to the Protect Your Noggin podcast. We offer lessons in outfoxing religious wolves. And sometimes we will address emotionally difficult subjects. So make sure you pay careful attention to our descriptions of each of the episodes. And then also have some resources handy, such as the Crisis Text Line. That's one of our favorites, which is 741-741. That's 741-741. Now, just take a deep breath because we're not afraid to go deep. But don't worry because we'll also have some fun along the way. Our plan is to help us all resurface with insights and tools to help heal ourselves and our communities. So come along, because we got this. All right, friends, as I said, I'm going to talk about uh, liberal arts today, and I am uh, on my own for this bonus episode, but I'll let you know that uh, a lot of it really comes from some great insights that Stacy shared with me. So you'll hear about those in my convocation address, but just briefly, I want to talk a little bit about the liberal arts, right? What are the liberal arts? The liberal arts refers to this word free, right? Liberal and free, but 
if we ask, is that kind of education good for us as a society? Is it good for us as people? Well, it depends on what you mean by freedom, and it depends on where your emphasis is related to freedom. If liberal arts is for free people, you can think of the liberal arts as something for privileged people who have wealthy families and they don't have to work in factories. They don't have to work in fields. They are not the lower class laborers. They're rather the people who get to read, you know, Chaucer while other people are flipping burgers. If that's what you're talking about, if liberal arts is for free people, as in not poor people and slaves, then maybe we need to take a second look at whether that's a worthwhile thing for a society. But if the liberal arts is about freeing people, right? It's not for free people, but it is meant to free people. It is for all. It is something that we can help um, give access to those who are first-generation students, to those who are recently um, you know, immigrants to our country, to people who are refugees. If the liberal arts is something that we spread broadly to all people who want it and, and who would, would benefit from it, I think it can actually be emancipatory. It can set our minds free, and when it does... It can help us protect our noggins from cults, people who want to manipulate us, and heck, bad diet cults, right? So if you go to college and you study your biology, you're going to have a better chance of not being duped by the snake oil salespeople that want to sell you weird diets or supplements, and yet you'll be able to be on the lookout for healthy diets and supplements. When I was first finishing my degree at Oxford, I found myself really drawn to the idea of teaching middle school or high school kids, uh, specifically those who might be either at risk or from communities that might be disadvantaged. And I wanted to give some of the stuff I've learned, along with my passion for the well-being of students, to the kids. And so I found myself teaching at a school. In fact, I, I uh, kind of helped to craft a middle school program that was classical. It was a block curriculum of the humanities, and uh, I really enjoyed the students there. I, I tell you, the students that I had in middle school in like the year 2000 in West Philadelphia were some of the best students I've ever had. Sometimes they got a little out of control. I won't, uh, you know, I won't deny it, but you know, middle schoolers. And uh, yet they gave the best speeches, some of the best papers, some of the best engagement, amazing, amazing young minds. And predominantly uh, students of color, uh, but uh, definitely in a part of the neighborhood that maybe we wouldn't think you would associate with the high-end classical schools, the high-end parochial schools. And that's what I liked about it. It was this idea that we were going to help people help themselves through learning the language of the great books in the Western tradition. But as I continued my journey in, in looking at education and looking at race and politics and how it all fits in with education, I started to get a little bit uncomfortable. Was it in some ways wrong for me to teach Latin and Aristotle to my black students instead of other texts that might be more obscure? Now, Make no mistake, I just got done finishing a reader for America and the World for my students in college looking at American history, and it includes some of the classics, you know, the classic great hits of the American uh, tradition that everybody would be familiar with, and it also, you know, 
picks on some really interesting, maybe lesser known texts. And all of that together, I think, is is better than leaving out stories. In fact, you know, one of the things that's really important for liberating people, I think, is the idea that when we when we just do history as something that only tells the story about kings and generals, then we give people the idea that the only way that they themselves can be free is through power and violence and war. Or if we only tell the story um, in terms of the Henry Fords of the world, then we're going to assume that the only real story worth thinking about is that of industrialism and mammon and making money. But there are a lot of other stories. There were people that will never know their names. There are movements that we do know about that that do have names, and yet they're very rarely known about in uh, in the high schools and the colleges even. So uh, liberal arts, right, um, has been under attack for a lot of people. And, and you know, uh, people used to march. I think it was Jesse Jackson was leading a march where they were saying, uh, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go, right? Um, as if, or or with the assumption that that in a in a very extreme way we might just get rid of it altogether, you know, and in some ways I can you know I certainly understand why people might be be thinking that, but I'm I'm really interested in a recent uh, Washington Post piece from Cornell West and Jeremy Tate. I, I had an opportunity to to bump into Cornell West at a conference a while back, and I was struck by the fact that this guy actually really cared about bringing classical education and Christianity into the conversation in a way that I had been kind of embarrassed about, right? So here's uh, a black educator who is um, very well, you know, known, and I, uh, you know, I'm in awe of, you know, this kind of academic celebrity, and yet he's kind of saying, hey, uh, don't, don't be too quick to eliminate stuff from the curriculum that would be important for you to have. And so um, let me just read a little bit from this piece by West and Tate, and it's entitled, Howard University's removal of the classics is a spiritual catastrophe. Howard University, historically black um, university, and uh, they, they, they got rid of their classics department. You know, colleges are getting rid of departments all the time these days. Whole colleges are closing. Concordia Selma, a historically black college in the Lutheran tradition, gone, right? So getting rid of one department isn't really necessarily some uh, some some great uh, some great uh, treason against education but it does mark something and it does provide west and tate an opportunity to defend at least some limited role of the classics within um, the the goal of an education that is freeing and liberating here's what they write uh, quote Howard University is diminishing the light of wisdom and truth that inspired Douglas, King, and countless other freedom fighters. Amid a move for educational prioritization, Howard University is dissolving its classics department. Tenured faculty will be dispersed to other departments where their courses can still be taught. All right, so that's good, right? You can, you can read about Homer in, a, in a, maybe a history department. But the university, or literature, I suppose, but the university has sent a disturbing message by abolishing the department. Academia's continual campaign to disregard or neglect the classics is a sign of spiritual decay, 
moral decline, and a deep intellectual narrowness running amok in American culture. Those who commit this terrible act treat Western civilization as either irrelevant and not worthy of prioritization, or as harmful and worthy only of condemnation. Sadly, in our culture's conception, the crimes of the West have become so central that it's hard to keep track of the best of the West. We must be vigilant and draw the distinction between Western civilization and philosophy on the one hand, and Western crimes on the other. The crimes spring from certain philosophies and certain aspects of the civilization, not all of them. The Western canon is, more than anything, a conversation among great thinkers over generations that grows richer the more we add our own voices and the excellence of voices from Africa, Asia, Latin America, and everywhere else in the world. We should never cancel voices in this conversation, whether that voice is Homer or students at Howard University, for this is no ordinary discussion. Right? So, And then he, they conclude... The classical approach is united to the black experience. It recognizes that the end and aim of education is really the anthem of black people, which is to lift every voice. That means to find your voice, not an echo or an imitation of others. But you can't find your voice without being grounded in tradition, grounded in legacies, grounded in heritages. All right. Now... Whether you agree or disagree, I think it's important to hear this. It's important for me to hear it because as I was putting together, you know, as I was putting together this, this reader, um, it was painful, right? We talked about this last time, um, Elizabeth Keckley, for instance, I was reading about or, you know, reading about how difficult it was for people um, to to deal with the fact that they, on the Manhattan Project, had created a, a bomb that could destroy a whole city, right? There's these painful stories. I am with West and Tate when it comes to examining and, and confronting the reality of what happened in the past. I think the only exception I might take is the idea of civilization. From my vantage point as a kind of Christian anarchist, I tend to see civilization as a manifestation of the fall, by which I don't mean society. I think society is great. I think culture is great. I think families are great. I think networks of people are great. But if by civilization we mean the domination system, the hierarchical structure that seeks to get us all in line and dominate us, then I'm not so certain. The friends that I have that are libertarians, the friends that I have that are anarchists, the friends that I have that are just whatever, but recognize the problem of, of authoritarianism and, and fascism and all this and, and empire, right, will recognize that the idea of civilization is not a necessary one. We've had civilization recently in human history, but it's not the only story. And there have been other stories that have been at least instructive right? Things that we could maybe consider, uh, ways of being that we could consider. So I agree with uh, West and Tate that we should read these things and that to say, I don't like what happened in the past, or I don't like, let's say, Immanuel Kant, who's a total uh, racist. He basically invents, Immanuel Kant basically invents ideological racism, arguably, to defend 
um, economic reasons for slavery, right? Uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't read Immanuel Kant. And it also doesn't mean that Kant's categorical imperative um, uh, is something that you shouldn't wrestle with, right? The categorical imperative is the idea that you should be able to universalize your ethical actions. But more importantly, even though he was a hypocrite about it, or it, so, it, so it seems, Kant's practical imperative, I think, is even more important. The practical imperative being don't treat people as means to an end, treat them as ends in themselves. Well, I think that's perfectly uh, freeing, right? Even if he didn't do it. And so what I think West is trying to get us to consider is instead of just whining about the pain of the past or the wickedness of the past, we should ask also, are there ideas that people had that shouldn't be set aside? but rather should be expanded, should be given to all people. But make no mistake, the liberal arts aren't just threatened by the left or people that want to cancel readers right, or readings. It's also a problem that I've, I, I've seen on the right. And in fact, this is, this is one of the things that pushed me more in a, I think, politically uh, left-leaning direction earlier on in my career because I was at a university where a president who had dropped out of college basically realized or thought that the liberal arts make people lefties. And so he didn't really care about languages because he thought the world should just learn how to speak English, frankly. And uh, the nuanced thinking of the liberal arts, especially the social sciences, led to people being too, like we are talking about last time, empathetic towards cultures and communities that were crushed under the gears of the, you know, the big superpowers. So it was at that moment, that experience of the conservative Christian right-leaning reaction against the liberal arts that allowed me to see that it's not as simple as saying conservatives or liberals like this thing or don't. I think that there are some very serious ways in which we need to rethink the reinforcement of civilization in our kids' educations from K to 12 and into college. By rethink it, I mean, I think that we're we are in danger. There is something that's bad for our health, and that is teaching our kids that the solution to the problems created by the state is always going to be solved by the state itself, <laughs> right? Um, or that the problems of, F of economic injustice are going to be solved through, you know, just generating more money through factories and then throwing a little bit back into after-school programs. No, sometimes you got to get more radical. Sometimes you have to rethink the whole thing from the ground up. And in fact, people have. And, uh, and in fact, I uh, <clears throat> benefited or at least was affected by it. I've kind of mentioned a school uh, that I had uh, gone to in my earlier years in uh, Boulder, Colorado. And I called my pops and mom and I, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, remember. They couldn't remember the name of the school, but they did remind me uh, about some of the themes and the things that were going on at the time, you know, um, it, you know, uh, reminiscing about some of the flavors, even like celestial seasonings, uh, real, real popular there, you know, the tea and oranges and, um, uh, and green mountain granary or whatever. Uh, so there are these, there are these moments and times and, uh, and yet we couldn't remember. So if you happen to be from Boulder in the seventies, Hey, Maybe shoot me a little note to uh, let me know if you can remember the names of any um, schools that were uh, kind of progressive or modern schools. Uh, it, it would feel 
like. The school that I remember seemed very much to be in the tradition of libertarian scholar um, and, and, and theorist uh, from uh, Barcelona, uh, uh, Francisco Ferrer, uh, 1859 to 1909, who didn't want punishments or rewards or exams. And uh, he was a guy who was executed after a failed insurrection, uh, known as Barcelona's Tragic Week. But he's a pretty important educational theorist who wanted to help kids, and he was an atheist, but he wanted to help kids get away from the dogmatism and the indoctrination of the, uh, the schools that were in that church-state alliance. Well, I'm not an atheist, but I can see why uh, somebody who grew up in that very heavily Catholic and, um, uh, and state-driven kind of society or s- uh, situation would say, hey, you know what? Let's do this a different way. Uh, I, when I was growing up, was, was exposed to that. I thought that was pretty interesting, although I wish they would have taught me scales for my my music. So I, I, one of the reasons I want to research more into what they were about is, you know, precisely because I'd like to know the actual history of that school and whether or not it was a Montessori kind of thing. Was it aware of its connection to, uh, you know, Francisco Ferrer's ideas about education and, and anarchy? It'd be interesting. Maybe they, you know, they slipped some things into my mind, made me think it was my own idea, but I didn't really let those things germinate until my Christian anarchy kind of grew up in the uh, later part of my life. Though I've always, when I was, um, when I was hanging out more in the Republican world, I, I always saw myself more in the libertarian tradition. Anyway, I'm also interested in the educational theories of NFS Grundtvig. Grundtvig, the Danish educational reformer and theologian. And uh, I think his, his flow is, is kind of interesting. Uh, he, he wanted to teach students the Nordic languages in Greek, but not Latin, because Latin was associated with the dominator culture of Rome and authoritarianism. He didn't want people taking notes, because notes are really for you to spit back to the professor, he thought, you know, the indoctrination that you were giving him. What he wanted people to catch was the spirit. He wanted people to get excited about the conversation itself. Because once you get in there and you can start to talk about things in an educated way, not to show how smart you are, but to really dig deep into the reality of the situation, well, that's that's pretty helpful. Now, I'm about to then uh, turn it over to, well, me. <laughs> I'm going to turn it over uh, or switch over to the to the uh, convocation address that I gave at Concordia University on Monday. But one of the things that I had to cut out of my manuscript because it was uh, going a little bit long was mention of, in fact, the history of Christian higher education, that there have been moments in which Christian higher education institutions around America have been anti-integration, right? Uh, that there was, there has been a latent kind of racism behind it. Uh, it's sometimes been a retreat uh, from the public square and into fundamentalism, into an anti-science mode. Uh, and it has been elitist. It has been for people that were able to, to pay for it, though not always. Um, but I think that this uh, is also driven sometimes by a, a kind of fear, right? That is to say, if I'm, if I'm trying to um, uh, like make money for the school in terms of fundraising, I'm going to emphasize my anti-evolution, anti-LGBT, anti 
climate change, whatever anti I've got there, um, identity as a school, because that's sometimes what's going to help people contribute and go to that school as an alternative to what they see as the public schools who are trying to indoctrinate the kids with left-leaning ideas, progressive ideas, right? So there is that side, but there's also another story. For instance, uh, you might want to pop around the uh, internet and, and do some research into Oberlin College. Oberlin College in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s started to uh, bring black people into the education system. They had women enter into the college system, and they became a stop along the the uh, the famous Underground Railroad. So to say that all Christian liberal arts schools are part of the problem will, would definitely not be true. And as you hear what I'm talking about, one of the themes that comes up over and over in my talk, in my, um, my address to the students, is something that I got from Stacy, And it's this idea that you are who you were. You are who you were, but you don't have to be. Well, universities and colleges and K-12 parochial schools are who they were, but they don't have to be. What if conservative, evangelical, and confessional schools all around the country decided that they weren't going to advocate for persecuted minorities because it was what the secular schools did, but because they want to do it better because they're doing it not out of compulsion, but because they are followers of Jesus? <laughs> what if they did that? What if they taught a way of living in harmony with the earth so that we don't destroy the creation that we've been given? That could have an amazing effect, a, a rather swift effect on something that seems unstoppable, and that is the de degradation of our climate, something we've seen on every trip we've been uh, taken, Stacy and I. It's not really likely, but what if? And one more thing. I know this is, this is hard for some of you to, to even imagine, but what if all confessional, believing Christians in this country knelt for the national anthem until serious changes were made to the way we relate between police forces and cities, people in, uh, in all walks of life. Um, if the Christians were doing what Colin Kaepernick was essentially going to be hassled for and, and it was going to hurt his career, then that would be a meaningful step for Christians. If followers of Jesus all went on strike from the unjust systems in this world, and reinvested some of their discretionary cash into training everybody, giving access to first generation, refugee, minority, internationally poor students, and invested there instead of in bombs, instead of in, in uh, the, the toxic production that we constantly um, uh, seem so addicted to in our world. We could get out of this mess. Do we have the will? I don't know. But can we raise up an army of, of supremely loving, wonderful justice and mercy kids that grow up into justice and mercy leaders in our society? I think that's possible, too. That's why I haven't uh, stepped out of the classroom yet, friends. And that's why I love doing podcasts, because education isn't about just getting a grade or getting a degree. Liberal arts education is about mental, spiritual, emotional, religious educational emancipation, emancipating our minds from mental slavery 
is the way forward in so many ways of life. It's really our only hope, I think, given all the precarious things that we face these days. But don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. And thank you, by the way, to Badger, who uh, gave us a a wonderful um, voice message of support, Uh, to Nisa and others who have written us. I tell you what, those little and sometimes longer notes and those, uh, those words of support are what we're supposed to be doing in this alternative kingdom of the world. Whether you're a, a person who identifies as a Christian or not, what I'm talking about is a group of people getting together saying, we renounce money, power, and glory, and we're going to educate ourselves and our kids in a better way. Is it possible? I think it is. And as you're going to see, you might find it odd that I'm really emphasizing some ways in which it's especially possible at a Christian educational operation. I mentioned this in a more formal way in my old Trembeth lecture. This one's uh, a little bit shorter, so it might be a little bit more digestible. Man, I'm so glad that you're sticking with us. Thanks for being here. And uh, on to my talk. It is a standing tradition at CUI that we kick off the new academic year with a formal convocation address by this year's distinguished Qui Bono professor. It is truly an honor to introduce Dr. Jeff Mallinson. He is a professor and chair of the History and Political Thought Department. He is also faculty in residence for the Honors Living Learning Community. He is an undergraduate alumnus from CUI and earned his Doctorate of Philosophy at the University of Oxford. He is an author and editor of several books and articles and hosts a regular podcast called Protect Your Noggin with his wife, Stacy. Dr. Mallinson is the 2021 Quibono Professor of the Year and this year's opening convocation speaker, speaker, Dr. Mallinson. Well, greetings, scholars, and, uh, and greetings to my colleagues who are here dedicated to this wonderful, wonderful gift that we, we enjoy, and that is to cultivate scholars. There is an inscription above St. Paul's Monastery on Mount Athos, and the translation in English is something like, if you die before you die, you won't have to die when you die. If you die before you die, you won't have to die when you die. Now, of course, if you're familiar at all with the Christian tradition, this seems like a nice condensation of what the whole thing's about, right? Like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But the reason I have been thinking a lot about this inscription is not because of that specifically, but because of the work that my wife has recently got into. My wife, Stacy, uh, among other things, is a death doula, which is maybe not a profession. Uh, certainly not a profession that people, I mean, it's a profession, it's a vocation, but people don't always know, you know what that is. Sometimes people call it end-of-life doula to try to sanitize the work. But basically, it's somebody who comes alongside people who have terminal illness and helps them to navigate all of the various components. Sometimes there are counselors, sometimes there are hospice workers, pastors, etc. But somebody to come along as your advocate and uh, somebody to coach you through what this experience means. It's uh, not something I would have thought of myself. 
But she did uh, give me the gift of coming along with her and meeting with a couple clients. And uh, in this context, uh, I was primarily there to talk about philosophical, existential issues, religious issues, especially with people who may have been harmed by the church, uh, or a church, I should say, and maybe are uncomfortable having a clergy person present at that moment, talking through what that might mean, what their options are. But most important to me is what this experience was able to teach me. And it taught me at least a couple things. First, that the work is very refreshing in one sense, but also that it's terrifying. Not so much about the death. Let me start with the refreshing part. What's really refreshing after you've spent a lot of time talking to people about just trivial things, petty disputes, drama, you know, uh, it's really nice to be able to have a conversation about the good, the true, and the beautiful with somebody who has allowed death to strip away all of that nonsense and get them focused on what really matters, those big issues. But it's terrifying, it was terrifying for me, because on occasion, Stacy and anyone else who works with those who are dying will come across somebody who is riddled with regret. And regrets that cannot easily be resolved in the time that they have left. Not easily. I think they can be resolved. Regret that they had uh, too little time to fix the damage they've done to their families uh, and to their communities. And to these people, Stacy has a tough word, but it's part of her work, and that is to face reality. And as you re face reality, um, you would hear Stacy say, for instance, you are who you've been. Who we don't like that. You are who you've been. We want to say, I'm a great dad. I'm, I'm, at, at my core, I'm a good person. I'm a loving person. I'm a kind person. But if you go your whole life and you never really talk to your kids, the reality is you are an absent parent, right? If you're an addict, there are reasons for this. But if that's who you were through your child's life, at the end of your life, you'll look back and say, that's, that's kind of way this movie went. And that's hard. I don't know what to say to people in those moments, um, maybe theologically, but to be able to reconcile what this means for their life story, that's my wife's work. And I asked her, what is the number one regret people who are dying have told you or have told people? And, and there's a lot of information on this. And she told me, quote, and this is not her quote, this is what people say, quote, I wish I had had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. And what do you do when you're at death's door? And that's the reality. This is also something that the Stoic philosopher Seneca spoke about in a letter to a friend where he writes, quote, they live ill who are always beginning to live. Some people, indeed, only begin to live when it is time for them to leave off living. And even more upsetting is the fact that some people have left off living before they've begun. Now, you're in a different spot for the most part, and I'm glad for that. Fortunate you. This is a happy moment because you aren't looking back. You are looking forward to not only a new chapter, but to the rest of your life, right? And that means you've got a horizon with many paths ahead of you. You've got an abundance of options and possibilities. But that also can create anxiety in you. Just like when you go to the Cheesecake Factory and you've got too many options and you stress out you might freeze up and not make a decision, 
and then the food server has to come back, you know, in 10 minutes. And, uh, and this is something that happens when it comes to regret, right? You might be so worried that you're going to make the wrong choice that you regret the choice, and so you don't make a choice, and you regret not making a choice. Well, that's regrettable too. So you're just kind of stuck in this whole world of regret. That's a funny thing about regret. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard spoke to this in his book, Either Or. He wrote it um, with a pseudonym. But he basically has this really interesting piece there where he says, imagine, and you've had this experience, I'm sure, maybe this morning, that you're in bed and the rooster crows, or in your case, your, your watch goes off, your alarm goes off, and you want to snooze it, right? And you snooze a couple times, and you're sitting there in bed, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to regret getting up and, and tackling this day. I don't want to do that. I'm going to regret that. But you also realize that if you stay in bed by noon, you're going to regret that you stayed in bed. So if you get out of bed, you'll regret it. If you stay in bed, you'll regret it. No worries. You're up and Adam, you're out and you're having lunch and you're thinking to yourself, should I ask that person to marry me? Mm. Don't, don't do that in your freshman year, please. I mean, you can, it's legal and not to be done. Um, but uh, Kierkegaard says, you know, you're thinking if I marry this person, I might re have regrets. Mm. But if I don't marry this person, I might have regrets. <laughs> Marry the person or don't marry the person, you'll have regrets. So there you go. Talking about death and regrets, you are welcome. <clears throat> what do you do? What do you do in this situation? Well, a lot of athletes want to say, and you've probably seen them on ESPN after screwing up a game, no regrets, man, I have no regrets. You don't? You ran the wrong direction on the football field. You should regret that. That was the wrong direction. Um, but I, I understand what people mean, you know, they put their heart out there, you try your best and you feel good, you know, about the work that you've done. That's, that's good. But if you live trying to avoid regret, that's going to incapacitate you, I think. What your better option is, I suggest, is to ask yourself, if I've got a few options before me, what is the path that you will most regret not taking? That's the only thing, because you're going to have to, like uh, Marie Kondo, if you know this, you're going to have to say goodbye to some things, you honor it, you thank it, and you're going to move on. But you, you, you're going to do that, but you're also not going to really be enjoying your life later on if there was a path that you knew you should take, but out of fear, out of doubt, out of a lack of drive, or whatever it is, that you didn't take that path, right? Now, how does this fit in with dying before you die. Dying before you die is, a, is, is partly about the afterlife. Yeah, definitely about that. But for Stacy, it's also about helping people live now. Live now in the gift that is now. No matter how long you've got to live, you've got a thousand nows between here and there. And there's an amazing possibility for you to be able to redeem the whole story in those moments. And if you die to your ego, this is the key, if you die to what Martin Luther calls the old Adam, if you drown the old Adam, you can set free a possibility for your true self to flourish. Or at least you can allow yourself to be set free for your true self to flourish. Because Stacy's message to the dying is not only you are who you were, but the best part of it is you are who you were but you don't have to be today. You are who you were. If you were something in the past, 
That's what you're bringing with you. That's your identity. That's the, at least as the existentialists say, your essence is defined by your being, what you're, what you're doing in this world, or at least in conventional human terms. Um, but you don't have to be the same person today. And, and that's why I love this year's theme. Don't dwell on times past. Look, I am Yahweh. I am about to do something new, something new. It could be a good story. It could be a crummy movie. Unfortunately, or fortunately, you're the star in that movie, at least as far as your uh, camera goes. Now, I am um, ashamed to say, I suppose, that I have watched a lot of Bachelor and Bachelorette. That, that franchise is well known to me. And on this, uh, you know, you'll probably be familiar with this idea that some people are there for the wrong reasons. Mm. Some of you are here for the wrong reasons. Some of you are here for the wrong reasons. But you don't have to be. You don't have to be. Maybe in high school you were a bully. But today is the first day when you can say everyone's going to know you as the person who exudes kindness. It's possible. Maybe you've got a racist accent, by which I don't mean any regional accent. I mean that you don't even realize how, how you sound when you're talking about stuff. And your first reaction is probably going to be, well, hey, wait a minute, I'm not racist, so don't, don't, don't push back at me. Or today could be the first day where you learn a new language of love and mutual respect. It's possible. Maybe you were a slacker in high school. But today is the first day that you were called a scholar, perhaps, and that is who you decide you really are here at CUI. That's what happened to me. I came here and I developed a love of learning because I was infected with the love of learning from my colleagues, some of them who are standing or sitting here uh, right now. And it is in that moment where you realize that the good, the true, and the beautiful, the liberal arts, all the stuff that we're going to do isn't just a game. It's about concrete leadership in the real world. That can motivate you. It could be. Or maybe in high school you were lonely and you were isolated. You had no friends. It's not easy. Even at Concordia, you know, even sometimes I'm at the cafeteria feeling really awkward. You know, no one wants to be my friend. You know, I'm 47 years old. Why should I be worried about these things? But... You can be vulnerable enough to say that at this very moment, I am not an isolated person. I am a person with deep friendships that will transcend this four-year or whatever experience, that I will have these friends for years to come. Because you can even change your major next week. You could even change your major if your parents don't like it. They may not pay for it, <laughs> but you could change it. And maybe if you listen to Aristotle, you should. Maybe. Because Aristotle believed that your happiness had a lot to do with fulfilling your calling with excellence and in a rich community. It is not a vice to care about your own happiness. You just got to understand, maybe from my colleagues in core philosophy, what happiness is, right? What, what do we mean by happiness? But happiness is also your birthright. Any religion or ideology that tells you no is suspect. Now remember, uh, from a theological standpoint, I don't want to get you, get you off track here. I ain't no uh, Pelagian, if this means anything to you. Um, it is, of course, not a case where you can just simply say, all right, I'm going to be born again today. I'm just going to, like, you know, <clears throat> pull myself up by my own spiritual bootstraps and, and fix myself. It's not as easy as that. 
Martin Luther famously described the Christian life as simul justus et peccator, you're simultaneously a saint and a sinner. But as much as we like to remind ourselves, because we should, that we are sinners and that we do face death, uh, we are also saints. We are the presence of something powerful in this world. We just got to be awakened to this reality. And Jesus uh, is the way, and he opens up a way for us to have greater opportunities than maybe we ever even thought about. Because Jesus and his way offers freedom. Freedom not to do just any old stupid thing you want to do, but freedom to boldly be faithful to his call. The call of the good shepherd who takes us into some fun, but also some scary places. We are free to transform our communities, whatever they have been. We are free to work toward the healing of the world. This liberation becomes possible only when the gracious words reach our ears, that we are forgiven and that we are free. This is what awakens new possibilities regarding our identities, our callings, our, our possible paths in this life. Now, CUI, it has an identity, and it's what we've been, right? We are who we've been. But at the same time, this also is going to depend, as President Thomas said, on you. When people ask 10 years from now, what is Concordia? You are part of the definition of what Concordia is. We are part of the definition, and it changes sometimes. It changes and adapts. It is connected to a core mission that does not change, a set of confessions that do not change, but the personalities, the application, this changes. This changes. Now, you are thinking maybe, if you're not a Christian, that this is weird. You got into church. Thank you for coming into this space with us, and you're welcome here. I want you to know, though, that this is, this is a Christian university, if you didn't get the memo. And um, yet you don't have to be. And in fact, we're very glad that you're here, even if you're not. And I don't put the emphasis on the even. We're glad you're here if you're not, because we need that conversation. But this Christian space offers at least three possibilities for all of you, every one of you, to take advantage of. I'm not, a, I'm not a, uh, an Amish person, but I like Amish quilts, okay? So you might not be Lutheran, but here's what we got for you. It's not a quilt. We have some scarves, but we got some other things. Uh, these three things. I, I've cited these almost every time I've talked, and so my colleagues will have to forgive me. Um, but, but my youngest child said that the greatest thing about Concordia, if people want to know about it, would be these three things. Number one, you are unconditionally loved. This means that you can be vulnerable and take a hard look at who you've been. Because it's very hard for us to look at who we've been, bully, racist, whatever, if we don't have grace on the other side to help us let the great physician let us get spiritually naked and have the surgery happen upon us. We can take that hard look. And we can forgive ourselves for who we were, with discernment, not with shame. And number two, you have intrinsic value. This means that if you're a good student, we care about you. You're worthwhile. And if you're a bad student, you're worthwhile. If you are in any major, you have intrinsic value. Whatever your identity is, you have intrinsic value. Even if it turns out that college isn't for you and you say goodbye to us at the end of this term, you have intrinsic value. And third, we will not give up hope in you. We will not give up hope in you. That is, that even when you feel like you are hopeless, uh, practically, uh, that you don't have hope within yourself, we're going to hope for you until you can hope again. 
Because I think that this is an environment that is, that is very, very good for you to figure out how to become your true self. As Lao Tzu says in chapter 68 of the Tao Te Ching, quote, a thousand mile trek begins with a single step. This is a great day, friends and scholars, to take that single step. You can do it. Because you all are who you've been, but you also can be a new creation right now. You can be something else tomorrow. Some of you are already followers of Jesus. And to you scholars, I want to remind you of some important aspects of your true identity, whether you realize it or not. Despite all the other stuff that you brought with you to campus to adorn your ego, there's something real and enduring that is yours. Another birthright. You are the hands and feet of Jesus. You are the body of Christ. This is who you are. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the presence of a new kingdom, even amid our Babylon. This is who you are now. And as precarious as our times may appear, we are promised that this kingdom will have no end. So live this day and every day on this campus, if you will, in this eternal reality. I'm glad to share this time with you. Thank you. And do your homework. so much friends for joining us for this episode of the protect your noggin podcast you want to join in on the conversation we'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show you can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button and don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending you can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter low too much.